The rest of us, let's take our Bibles and turn to the Old Testament book of Job. The Old Testament book of Job. We're specifically going to be looking at Job, the 19th chapter. Job, the 19th chapter. And I'm taking advantage of this opportunity because we've been reading through the book of Job in the daily Bible reading. And so most of us probably are familiar with it by now since we've been there for several days and we're almost ready to finish the book. Let's ask the Lord's blessing as we look at His Word together. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your goodness to us, Your mercy, Your grace in this wonderful day of celebration. Lord, we pray that You would open our hearts to not only understand Your Word, but to receive it wholeheartedly and to respond in a way similar to Job. Lord, we ask these things in Jesus, your most precious and holy name. Amen. All right. In Job chapter 19, verse 23, 24, 25, and 26 and 27 are the focus this morning. But I'm going to hold off reading those for just a couple of minutes because there are a couple of other comments that Job makes that I want us to make sure we know before we look at 19 verses 23 and following. Job's health is failing. Job's health is failing and he is near death. He has been on death's doorstep for a long time now. And he has talked about his thoughts. He has talked about his perspective. He has talked about death. And in order to appreciate what he has to say in verse 19, we probably should remind ourselves of a couple of those descriptions that he gives to us. For instance, in Job chapter 7, verses 6 through 10, he says, My days are swifter than a weaver's shuttle. And if you know anything about a weaver's shuttle in those days when you, when you weave things by hand, they just fly that back and forth so easy and so quickly. They are spent without hope. Oh, remember that my life is a breath. My eye will never again see good. The eye of him who sees me will see me no more. While your eyes are upon me, I shall no longer be. And then he uses another word picture in addition to the weaver's shuttle and, of course, his breath. He says, as the cloud disappears and vanishes away, so he who goes down to the grave does not come up. He shall never return to his house, nor shall his place know him anymore. That's pretty dismal language. That's pretty depressing language. And he refers to that kind of thing many times. For instance, over into chapter 14, Job gives to us a very interesting description when he begins chapter 14, verse 1. 
by saying, man is born of woman and is a few days and full of trouble. Life is no picnic. Life has its difficulties. He comes forth like a flower and then he fades away. He flees like a shadow and does not continue. Over to verse 7. For there is hope of a tree, if it is cut down, that it will sprout again. Cut the tree down, and through the scent of water, that uh, you may see some shoots coming around that stump, and a tree will grow again. But notice what he says in verse 10. But man dies and is laid away. Indeed, he breathes his last. And where is he? We're just like water that disappears from the sea. We're like a river that becomes parched and dries up in the desert. And then he says in verse 12, So man lies down and does not rise till the heavens are no more. They will not wake nor be roused from their sleep. Now if the first passage depressed you, the second passage will continue to depress you even more. I mean, if you're listening, you're going to look at this and say, Yes, this is the reality. I have seen it. And maybe I will personally experience it, you see. Well, he gives us another one. I want to go to chapter 17, verses 11 through 16. And this time he's talking more not necessarily of the reality of death, but what it has done to his mind and his thinking because of his poor health. And that's all he has to look forward to is dying. And he says, it's a hopeless situation. Verse 11 says, my days are past. My purposes are broken off. Even the thoughts of my heart don't matter anymore. They change the night into day. People want to make me cheerful and happy. And they act like the night is turned into day and the light is near when I'm really in the face of darkness. And then in verses 13 and 14, he says, if I wait for the grave as my house... If I make my bed in the darkness, if I say to corruption, you are my father, and to the worm, you are my mother and my sister, where then is my hope? There's no hope in death. It's a reality that all of us cringe when we think about it. Now, go to Job chapter 19. Now, you and I know that Job's friends come to try to comfort him. And, and they try to do a good job. But in doing that job, they try to persuade him that the reason why he is at death's door is because he has personally sinned. Personally. And, and Job is just scratching his head and he's thinking about it and thinking about it and thinking about it and thinking about it. And if I could read between the lines, you know that Job is never going to suggest that he's not a sinner and he never does anything wrong. But boy, the pressure that his friends are putting on him to take full responsibility for his health is just overwhelmed him. He says, I don't know where you're coming from, guys. And so it leads him in verse 23, 24, and following to make this sta these statements. These are critical. These are important. In verses 23 and 24, he says, 
Oh, that my words were written. I wish I could write down my words. Not only do I wish I could write down my words, I wish that they were inscribed in a book. I wish we could publish them in a scroll or a book where it could go into a library and people could pick it up and read it and read it and read it and read it and read it. Not only today, but tomorrow and for generations to come. Not only that, but why don't we go out here and engrave my words on a rock with an iron pen and lead so that they'll be there forever for successive generations to read. Now what is he... What is he so excited about as far as having a testimony that is going to last for all eternity? What is it? In verse 25, he says this, and let's all read it. If you've got a New King James Version, this should be easy. For I know that my Redeemer lives. Let's all repeat that again. I want to do all of this, and I want everybody to know that my Redeemer lives. You often say, well, why? Now I know why tombstones are so important. Sometimes there's testimonies written on them, you know, because people want to be a testimony to those who will come in and, and look at that tombstone. And a lot of times those are testimonies like, I'm, I know the Lord or I know that my Redeemer lives. You'll see that from time to time. Now look at verse 25 again. For I know that my Redeemer lives, and now it's our responsibility because we're in the Old Testament, and now we have to figure out who Job is talking about. We've got to identify who the Redeemer is. You know, Job in this book, when he talks about his suffering and his pain, and he talks about his friends and how miserable comforters they are, he says, you know, I need somebody who's going to mediate this between me and God. I need someone who's going to take my case. I need someone who's going to, who's going to just take all of us and sit down with us and set the record straight on really what's going on here. And he craved it. He wanted it. But is that what he's referring to in verse 25 when he says, I know that my Redeemer lives? Well, here are the hints. Hint number one, if you want to try to identify who the Redeemer is, you'll already notice in how many translations out there have Redeemer capitalized. Raise your hand if your translation capitalizes the word Redeemer. Why is that the case? Because it's in reference to a particular person. And uh, hopefully we know him well. Here are the clues, though. Number one, this Redeemer is going to stand on the earth in the last day. In the end, he's going to stand on the earth in the last day. Now, you know where I'm moving with all of this. And you know that the suggestion is right off the bat that this is the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Where is he right now? The Bible tells us in 20, over 20 some places in the Bible that he is what? He is at the right hand of God the Father, but he's coming back to this earth. That's clue number one. Clue number two is that Job says, after my skin is destroyed. How do you like that description of death? After my skin is destroyed, and other translations will word it just a little differently, but he says, after my skin is destroyed, 
this is going to happen. All right, so clue number one, the Redeemer is going to stand on the earth in the last day. Clue number two, it's going to happen after Job dies. Now, you and I know that God is very gracious to Job, and Job does not die in the book of Job. God restores his health, God restores his wealth, and Job lives a long life because of God's grace. But at some point, Job did die. So he says, after that happens is when my Redeemer is going to stand at last on the earth. And then the third clue is in verse 26 as well. And I love it. He says, this I know. He says, this I know. This is going to go on the, this is going to go on the, the rock too or the tombstone or this is going to go in the book I want to write. Oh, by the way, God gave him an opportunity to write the book, didn't he? And you and I get to read it. That's pretty exciting if you ask me. But the third clue is that this Redeemer is going to stand at last on the earth and after my skin is destroyed, after I die, I am in my flesh going to see God. That's not a contradiction. Sounds like it. It sounds like the same contradiction that we have when Mary and Martha are talking to Jesus because uh, Lazarus had died. And Jesus says to Martha, he said, Martha, you know, don't worry, your brother's going to rise again. And she said, well, I know he's going to rise at the resurrection day. And then Jesus says, no, Jesus is going to perform a miracle, of course. And that miracle is going to be his physical resurrection to a physical body that will once again have to return to the dust. But Jesus says, He that liveth and believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And he that liveth and believeth in me shall what? Never die. So you know, you know Jesus is talking about that temporary separation between the body and the soul. You know, Good Friday, uh, Good Friday, I, I, I heard seven sermons on Good Friday. All right, seven. And uh, this just sticks in my mind. Um, Jesus was hanging on the cross, and there were two thieves there, right? There were two criminals, one on each side. And while God is pouring his wrath out on Christ so that Christ is paying the penalty of sin, God is giving both of those guys the opportunity to respond in faith. One wants nothing to do with it. One dies in his anger and his bitter and his disappointment. One dies because at the end of his life, he still couldn't see his way to the truth and trust Christ. But the other one says, Lord, will you remember me when you come into your kingdom? And the Lord says, yes. Not only will you be with me, but you'll be with me in paradise, and paradise is heaven. We have a couple of great descriptions of that. And he says, not only do you not have, you're going to be in paradise with me, but you don't even have to wait because it's going to happen today. So, I mean, keep in mind that there is a temporary separation between the body and the soul or spirit. And God has it all covered either way. But the fact of the matter is, he doesn't want us to think that when he created us, body and soul, 
He doesn't want to think that he's going to take away the body part, that's it, and we'll live the rest of our existence as spirits. No. When he created us, he created us with a body and a spirit or soul, and he intends to keep that going forever. And in order to keep it going forever, there's a resurrection day where we get resurrected and our bodies are transformed, and, and you could just name all of those transformation verbs and adjectives, and uh, you can name them all. There'll be no more pain. There'll be no more sorrow. There'll be no more sickness. Your eyes will be perfect. Your ears, hearing will be perfect. Your taste will be perfect. Everything will be perfect because you and I will be transformed. That's what Job's talking about. He says, you know, I'm going to die, he says, but I'm going, to stand at, I'm going to stand in my flesh and see God. And I'm going to see him for myself. I don't have to wait for someone to come and tell me, hey, you know, this is going to happen. He said, I'm going to see him for myself. I know it. My faith is great. I know it. Just as I know my own name. How about that kind of confidence? That's pretty good. Now, there's one other thing that we need to say here in order to identify this person. He says, I know that my Redeemer lives and the thing that you and I need to keep in mind is not only this Redeemer going to stand on the earth at last, in the end, but Job's, Job will have died by then, and then he will have been resurrected because in his flesh he's going to see God at some point. And uh, the work that this person is doing is the work of redemption. Now, I, wanna, I just want to share this with you just very briefly so you understand what I'm talking about. I, for years, could not understand what the word redemption meant because when I would go to the dictionary and I would look up the meaning of the word, it meant so many things in so many different situations. So let me boil it down very quickly to you. When the Bible talks about someone who is redeeming somebody, and I'll tell you what, the, the best way to do this is to go back to Webster's 1830-some dictionary and look all this up. Because he gives illustrations of every single one of these. But the best thing to do with this uh, fact that he's doing the work of a redeemer, this person, is that you and I can be in tough situations and we need to be rescued from those tough situations. You and I can be in a predicament and we need to be recovered from that predicament. Or you and I may be in bondage or in captivity and you and I need to be delivered from that bondage or captivity. And so someone steps in and he redeems. He takes that circumstance and he works it to take you out of that. Now, a couple of quick illustrations. For instance, if I, if I have to take an item to a pawn shop, I leave it there, right? But there's no 100% guarantee I'm ever going to get it back, right? See, I take it there because I, I, I need the money. So my, whatever I pawned is in captivity. Let's just use that as an illustration. It's in captivity until I go and redeem it, until I can go back and give him the money and say, listen, I, I want that back. You still have it, depending on what the agreement was that you made with the pawn shop. You see the point. 
And we have one of the best illustrations in all of Scripture when the Bible tells Hosea to marry a girl named Gomer who is a harlot. And God says, I want you to marry this girl. She's not going to be faithful to you. She's going to be running around. There are going to be kids as far as her relationship with others are concerned. But that's what I want you to do because I want to prove a point to Israel. And after she's away for a long time and she ends up in a very despicable situation, God comes to Hosea and says, now I want you to go buy her back. And the Bible tells us that Hosea goes down to the auction block, so to speak, and for 15 shekels of silver, buys her back, takes her back home. Now that's one of the best descriptions I know of as far as redemption is concerned. And so when we look at redemption as far as Job is concerned, you and I can say, well, he needs vindication for his uh, insistence that it's not his personal sin that has caused, that has caused this problem. I'd say, yeah, he does. But I don't think that's what he's talking about. I think it's crystal clear when you read the book of Job all the way through from beginning to end that Job understands he's in bondage and this being at death's death doorstep is a reality check for him. He understands that and he needs to be redeemed or bought back from the brink of death. He needs to be rescued. And so I'm just going to add this here because we need to be redeemed from sin and its consequence. The wages of sin is what? Death. And you and I need to be, and, and that's the most, I mean, as much as his friends are bothering him by not, by insisting on disagreeing with him, as much as that's happening, the reality in Job's life is I'm, I, I, could, I could die at any minute because of my circumstance, because of my personal circumstance. And I think it's interesting, I find that it's interesting that his friends are, 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 are trying to suggest to him that it's, per, it's his personal sin when Job understands, I, you know, I, I know I'm a sinner. I, I find that very interesting. But anyway, that's, that's another sermon there. The reference in this passage to the Redeemer is to who? Jesus. His coming to this earth, is it his first coming or his second coming? Second coming. It's in reference to his second coming. Job clearly knows about resurrection day. Now, you want to write that down. You need to write that down. Job clearly understands that there is a resurrection day coming. And the resurrection day that's coming is going to happen at the second coming of Christ. In Job chapter 14, after he talks about no hope for us when we die, there's hope for a tree. It's almost as if he thinks it through and he says, you know what, I need to qualify what I'm saying. And in verse 14 he says, if a man dies, shall he live again? He asks that question, if a man dies, can he live again? And his answer to that, he answers it himself. He says, all the days of my hard service, I will wait till my change comes. 
And I say that to you because we live in a day and age when people are trying to debunk as much of Scripture as they possibly can. You know, I, I, I'm, it's unbelievable what they do with the crucifixion and the resurrection of Christ. You know, like the women went to the wrong tomb. You, we've, we've gone over this stuff over the years. The women went to the wrong tomb. Or Mary was crying so hard she couldn't recognize the right place to go. It just reminds me of the, uh, the foolish statements uh, regarding Jesus' miracles. And my favorite is when, when, the, when the boy gave up his, his bread and his fish. He just had a couple of fish and a few loaves of bread, right? And he gave that up for 4,000 people. There are a lot of people who want to debunk that and say, well, well that had to be a miracle if, if 4,000 people ate. And uh, so we've got to explain that away. And how are we going to explain it away? And, 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 and here's, how the, here's, here's one of the most famous, and I've shared this with you, I know. Here's how one of the most famous people who didn't believe the Bible to be the Word of God explains it away. When everybody saw that this little boy was willing to give his lunch for 4,000 people, they all opened their clothes and pulled out the lunches that they were hiding. Jesus didn't die. He was just in the tomb, and he, uh, he, was, uh, he came back. The cool tomb just revived him. And it revived him after having a beating and being on the cross so close to death that he still had the strength to roll away the stone. So I say this to you because we don't give people in the Old Testament much credit. Who was the first person in the Old Testament who ever talked about the second coming of Christ? You say, second coming of Christ? Who was the first person? Anybody. Enoch. Seventh from Adam, Enoch. In Judy, we have the record of him talking about the second coming of Christ in Jude, verse 14. Abraham, when he took his son up to the top to sacrifice him because God was testing him, what did he reason in his heart? What does Hebrews tell us he reasoned in his heart? He says, well, I know God promised this is my son. God promised the nation that we're going to have as a result of, of my son, going to be the result of my son. So, Lord, you know what? I, I'm going to take him up there and I'm going to sacrifice him, knowing full well that you can raise him up again. So why are we surprised when we read Job and we look at this that I know that my Redeemer is living and He's going to stand on the earth and after my skin is destroyed, I'll see Him in the flesh. Why does that surprise us? Why does that surprise us? Verse 27, chapter 19, verse 27. Notice His reaction to what He has just said to us. He says, I'm going to see Him for myself. I'm going to behold him with my own physical eyes. This is not going to be hearsay. It's kind of remind you know Thomas. You remember Thomas was uh, not for the first Sunday, the resurrection Sunday. The disciples were together in the upper room, and Thomas wasn't there. Doubting Thomas wasn't there. You remember that. And Jesus appeared to the disciples, and they're just thrilled. They're excited. 
And the, one of the first things they do is they go out and say, Thomas, you missed this. You weren't here. And Jesus appeared to us. And Thomas said, ah, don't tell me that. I don't believe it. I don't believe it for men. The only way I'm going to believe that Jesus was resurrected is if I can put my fingers into the scars in his hands. And so next Sunday, he was there. Next Sunday evening, he was there. You remember? And Jesus went over to Thomas, and he said, Thomas, look. Put your fingers in the scars. And Thomas was so overwhelmed, he said, you are not only my Lord, but you're my God. You remember him saying that? Job is just as excited about Resurrection Day. When he says to us, he says, uh, I'm going to see him for myself and my eyes shall behold him and not another. And then he concludes it with saying, how my heart yearns within me. This is so exciting. This is a highlight of my experience to know this is going to happen. And I would suggest to you that this is probably the climax of the whole book of Job as far as Job's personal life is concerned. There are many other good things to happen. Job is saying very emphatically, this is no joke. The resurrection is no pipe dream. It's no fantasy. It's not like Paul going to the city of Athens, which was the academic uh, city in the whole Roman Empire of that day. Athens was the city that had more colleges and universities in the time of Christ than any other city in the Roman world. It had been steeped so deep in Greek culture that if you wanted to get a good degree, you applied to a college or university in the city of Athens. And so when Paul gets to Athens, he says, you know, I'm walking around the city and I see idols everywhere. I see idols everywhere. I have a, I have a um, geography book that was written. It's kind of like a travel log and uh, it's written uh, during the time of Christ. I have it in my library. It's written in Greek and it has some... But I'm sharing this with you because, you know, when Paul said all of that, that was actually true. Because uh, this travelogue is, if, if, if you go to the city of Athens, I'm going to give you this, uh, I'm going to give you a list of all of, the, um, all of the idols over there and the street locations and where you can find them and everything like that. In the most academic city in all of the Roman Empire. And so Paul says, let me tell you who the real God is. Remember that? Let me tell you who the real God is. And then I want you to understand that this God resurrects people from the grave. And you'll remember that as soon as they heard that, they said, oh, you're, that's a bunch of hooey. That's a bunch of baloney. You're just a babbler. And they mocked him. The most intelligent people, supposedly on earth, <laughs> didn't get it. Well, I'm going to close. Let me just say this to you, that such confidence is not possible if Christ didn't rise. Job would not have had that confidence if Christ didn't rise. The Bible tells us that we're going to be like Jesus because Jesus rose from the dead and he proved for 40 days who he was and what life was going to be like in a body that was transformed. And in 1 Corinthians, 
chapter 15, and you don't have to refer to this, but I just want to bring it to your attention so maybe you can read it in your spare time. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul says, I don't understand some of you guys. Some of you guys act like and you say that there is no resurrection of the dead. Well, Christ rose. If there's no resurrection from the dead, then Christ didn't rise from the dead. And he spends several verses using the word if. If Christ didn't rise, then our faith is vain. If Christ didn't rise, then our preaching is nonsense. If Christ didn't rise, what are we all doing here? See, that's what he does. And the important thing, of course, is that Paul wants us to know that our confidence in resurrection is in the resurrection of Christ himself. My final application would be this to you. Do you know with confidence what Job knows in the Old Testament? And number two, do you yearn like Job? My heart yearns within me. I'm excited at the prospect of eternal life. The salvation that God has planned for us is not complete until the body and the soul are refashioned or put together again. Now you can take that statement with you, write it down, put it as a motto, hang it on the door. Paul makes that clear in Romans chapter 8, makes it very, very clear. He said, we're waiting for a complete salvation, the not only a salvation for our soul, but also redemption of the body as well. Now, in your hymn book, there is a song. We're not going to sing this. We're going to sing another song. We're going to close in just a minute. But I want you to turn to it in 164. In 164. What's the title of the song in your hymn book? What's the title? I know that my Redeemer liveth. I know that my Redeemer liveth and on the earth again shall stand. I know eternal life he giveth that grace and power are in his hand. Do you know all of that? I know, I know that Jesus liveth and on the earth again shall stand. I know that life he giveth that grace and power are in his hand. Two other great verses, but... I know that my Redeemer liveth. Do you know?